0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second session of IPS Singapore Perspectives Conference 2021 Reset. I'm Faisal from uh, from IPS. This session is entitled Environment and Sustainability. And before I introduce the moderator and hand over the session to her, please do let me run through some brief uh, admin matters. Um, Please submit your questions for the panelists via pigeonhole in the questions submission section on this forum's page. You can do this at any time during the session. We invite all our conference uh, participants to contribute to the discussions in a respectful and safe manner, uh, focusing on the issues at hand. Um, However, IPS reserves the right to act in a way to ensure it is always the case in all of the chat or or Q&A functions at our conference site. Um, This session will be moderated by Dr. Corinne Ong. She is the Deputy Director and Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Water Policy, Lee Kuan Yeh School of Public Policy. I shall now hand over to Corinne, please. Corinne, over to you.
1: Thank you very much, Faisal, for the introduction. A very good afternoon to everyone, and thank you for joining us on this forum on Environment and Sustainability. I'm very glad to be moderating this forum, which I consider very apt in relation to the conference theme, Reset. Without doubt, COVID-19 has upended the momentum in which we have conducted our economic, social and political affairs in Singapore and worldwide. Yet, despite these disruptions, optimists believe that the pandemic could well provide a window of opportunity for us to reset our perspectives and prompt reflection on the sustainability of our existing actions. In thinking about the future of our environment and sustainability, there is increasing realisation that planning for the future really means acting now. And over the years, Singapore and many countries around the world have made watershed investment and policy commitments towards environmental protection and sustainability. Yet, critics believe that more needs to be done, more strategically, with greater urgency, and involving more stakeholders in this effort. So our conversation today will center around an exploration of what Singapore and others have achieved on the sustainability front and exploring the potential for more impactful change. Joining me today is a very distinguished panel whose accomplishments and contributions to academia and society are evident in their speaker biographies. So I'm very excited to have them here with us today and look forward to a very engaging dialogue with them as well as with you, the audience. So, I'd like to introduce our first speaker for the forum, Associate Professor Simon Tay. Prof Tay teaches international law at the National University of Singapore. Prof Tay is also chairman of the Singapore Institute of International Affairs and senior consultant at Wong Partnership. Prof Tay has served as an expert advisor to policymakers and corporations, so I'm very excited to learn what he has to share with us on this topic today. Prof Tay, over to you.
2: Thank you very much, Corinne. Thank you, IPS, for inviting me. It was my pleasure to be in several of the Singapore perspectives for IPS back in the 2000s and earlier, and I'm delighted to return to this forum. In many ways, this topic and the way we discuss it is would have been completely impossible a decade ago or even a few years ago. I think as the title overall says, reset is the right way to look at it. In the 15 minutes I have today, I thought I'd share some of the global, national, and regional impulses and changes that are making this reset possible. And then in particular, I wanted to zoom in of what I think is both a challenge and an opportunity for Singapore and ASEAN, where much of my work and the SWIA's work features and where much of Singapore's economy is and will be. I have a few slides. I hope I can share them with you. Would you put on the slide one, please? Thank you. Oh, that's just me. The next one, please. As I mentioned, I think there really are global, national, and also regional issues at stake in looking forward at climate and sustainability or environment. At the global level, I think this bears little repetition. The efforts of climate change and the sustainable development goals have really ramped up in the last few years. This is doubled by the pandemic. Many governments, and especially the EU, have called for a green recovery and put sizable amounts of budget into it. Moreover, the latest moving piece is the USA. While President Trump took Americans out of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, incoming President Joe Biden has pledged to and reinforced this with almost every speech is given post-victory. When the Americans come in, and they will, it will mean that over 60% of the world will have some cap or commitment to carbon neutrality. In our own region, China, Japan, and Korea, all sizable economies with important value chains through the region have also committed to carbon neutrality, zero. In this sense, the pace of commitments, the pace of of trying to make things work has increased at the global level. Where there was much talk and no action, I think we're looking forward to a period where there will be both talk and action. At the national level, though, I'd say that it can never be enough. Uh, While uh, governments are committed, they will face excoriations and sometimes anger from a younger generation that expect those commitments to move even faster than they are. And that's why I have Greta Thunberg on the screen. If you look at what she's been saying, it's not just the content, it is the tone. There is an expectation of speed and also inclusion in this effort towards moving towards climate change, action, and sustainability. At the national level here in Singapore, I think many of the country, companies, and citizens are also pushing for action, perhaps not in the same aggressive tone, but with increased expectations. There is a degree of anxiety. Within Singapore, we have had a strong green DNA right from the start. Under Lee Kuan Yew, we have always been and tried to be a green Clean and green nation. And this has been amplified by our consciousness over lack of resources and the need to move from green parks to much more being in nature. But the critical commitment has been made last year during the National Day Rally, sorry, 2019, by PM Lee Sen Lung, when he committed to taking action on climate change and put some baseline numbers and concerns on the table in, in the largest national forum that Singapore has. This actually did not come out of the blue. It kept over a decade of work by the Climate Change Coordination Committee, headed by then uh, Deputy Prime Minister and now Senior Minister, Kyo Chi Han. I'm very committed, I'm very, sorry, I'm very uh, convinced that the government is committed towards making real steps and understands where investments will start to pay off in terms of our uh, carbon move towards carbon uh, neutrality. There is, however, some caution. So Singapore has not joined Korea, Japan, or China in pledging towards carbon neutrality. Our current commitments have increased under the Paris Agreement, but are not in the same ballpark as some people would want us to be as a more developed country in our region. That brings me my third point of the region. For more than two decades, we've struggled with something on the image there called the transboundary haze pollution. This really is a stark signal fire, literally, that reminds us of the regional interdependence and our vulnerability, a very small country. In the last years, however, I'm pleased to say the SWIA has observed and tried to help foster much more positive signs from the Asian government that prioritizes under President Jokowi their own concerns and their own vulnerabilities of their people nearest the fires. Moreover, the resource sector companies and those who buy from them and those who finance them have also started to understand the signal towards sustainability. In this sense, it is not only governments and citizens, but corporations and markets. In this sense, I want to, in a way, tell us that we're moving towards more climate and sustainability values, ethical values, our own values as individuals. Yes, that's always been understood. But now the developing part is the value of a company, the sustainability of the investments and the pandemic has reinforced this when environmental ESG funds have been outperforming most other investments. There are, in this sense, always challenges, risks, but increasingly there are opportunities. Let me move on then to what the opportunities are in our region in particular. Can I have the next slide, please? One of the SWIA's work has really been about the transboundary haze and climate change. We've understood the problems. And we've tried to understand how the situation can get better. Um, in this sense, over the last year, uh, we've noticed the Indonesian fires are at least smaller areas, but the higher greenhouse gas emissions that come out from the peatlands. And this is making our region and Indonesia in particular, one of the growing and largest emitters of climate change gases in the world. Next slide, please. But while this problem has been a long existence, what has been the moving arrow is the growing momentum for ESG and climate action among the businesses. Now, in the 1990s, when I took up this issue as a Nominative Member of Parliament, I was one of the few, together with Prof. Tommy Koh, to excoriate the companies and call for laws that would punish them here in Singapore. I'm pleased to say that not only have the laws been passed, but in the years since then, most of the major companies have undertaken commitments. Moreover, in this year's study, the SWA chair, uh, think tank that I chair has found that these commitments continue and continue to be funded by these major companies, even during this downturn that all of us are feeling in the pandemic. For this reason, partly and partly the very wet weather we've been experiencing, our region has not had as many fires in 2020 as some of the other world parts of the world have had, like California. Uh, In this sense, the next step is moving from risk to global markets, rewarding sustainability. Singapore is making steps towards green finance, and so are our neighbours. The Singapore Exchange has put ESG reporting on the agenda, and so will Malaysia and soon uh, Indonesia, if their plans go through. In this sense, uh, we too in Singapore and the region will need to follow the lead of Europeans and others to really move towards a green recovery, a stimulus that will help not only the uh, economic recovery as a whole, but the other pillars of ESG and sustainability, the environment and the people towards inclusive development. May I have the next slide, please? Or is that the only slide? Beyond the next one, please. Yes. So this is when we have the opportunities. I think there really is a very strong opportunity for the green recovery and In that sense, Singapore must work beyond our shores. We already have an economy that clearly depends and invests in many of the countries around us. We are one of the top investors, if not number one, in Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Myanmar. We can and should use this economic engagement to further our green recovery and green opportunity. All the countries around us now are making commitments under the Paris Agreement there has been very little coordination in ASEAN. Last, in 2019, I keep saying last year, sorry, in 2019 was the first time that the then ASEAN chairman, Thailand, made a statement on behalf of the group rather than each country individually. But that statement was one short paragraph and rather general. I think one of the great opportunities is for ASEAN to work together to recognize our interdependence and vulnerabilities and also the opportunities that we as a common market and common investment destination can make on the green front. To get the group moving as a whole, though, we may need bilateral agreements. Singapore has done bilateralism before on trade and investment and should try the approach again in terms of stimulating climate action in the region and carbon markets. We can create the frameworks for opportunities, investments in carbon markets with our nearby neighbors like Indonesia, Myanmar, and even Brunei, which has made sizable commitments to move away from their own uh, carbon fossil fuel economy. In this sense, uh, the forest and nature-based solutions are one place to look, very obviously, but also clean energy. In the last decade, Singapore really ramped up our capabilities to be a leading proponent of solar energy and to finance the installation of solar energy to a region that needs the growth and needs the growth in energy, but hopefully clean energy. I think there's one more slide. In, in in this regard, Singapore, to remind ourselves, accounts for just 0.11% of global emissions. As PM has said before, even if shut off everything in Singapore, it wouldn't make a global difference. But as a financial hub, as a technology and innovation hub, as one of the voices in ASEAN, we can make an outsized contribution. Using our trade and finance levers, we can really set the tone for a recovery that will be a green one. There are technical issues that have to be addressed. There will be needs to have guidelines for green finance and really to make sure that sustainability incentive schemes are money well spent rather than wasted. We must stand for high standards rather than greenwashing. Singapore can and should develop, therefore, uh, expertise to provide carbon services, in carbon footprinting to understand the value chains, in trying to get uh, the uh, other elements of verification, monitoring, so that uh, people who invest their money, just as they do in the financial market, if they invest money in the carbon market that we hope to create, will not be cheated, but will be duly governed. Uh, I think that really we are at a threshold. Recently, the SDII conducted a talk with uh, coordinating Minister for Indonesia, Luhut, as well as our own Minister for Sustainability, Grace Fu. It was remarkable in the sense that Minister Grace Fu has embraced that her name of change of her ministry is more than just a uh, uh, nomenclature. The word sustainability is there in the, in the frame, and so is climate change. Additionally, the movement of green finance driven by MAS and banks has really grown, and I'm quite proud to say again, that the distance and trajectory of growth in the last three years have been quite rapid from the time when s and I conducted a baseline survey. I think that the opportunities are really there at this time. And in the year to come, a mixture of private sector efforts, citizen concerns, but also government cooperation bilaterally and on the regional ASEAN platform will move us further in the next few years than we have in the last decade or more. Let me stop there. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Prof. Tay, for your insights. So we'll now move to our second speaker. Uh, Our second speaker is Professor Alex Edmonds, who is Professor of Finance at London Business School and Academic Director of the Centre for Corporate Governance. Unfortunately, uh, Prof. Edmonds is not able to join us live for this session due to an unexpected travel disruption he experienced arising from the COVID situation in the UK. However, Prof Edmonds has kindly dedicated a recorded video for us, so we will still be able to hear from this academic expert who has actually made news with his uh, TED Talks, and 2020 book titled Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, which he actually talks about. So let's tune in to Prof Edmonds now.
3: Well, thanks so much for the invitation to be here. I'm delighted to do so, and I'm really sorry that I can't do this live. It's unfortunately 4 a.m. at my time. So what I am going to speak to is the power of sustainable business. I think a good place to start is to explain, well, what I mean by sustainable business to begin with. We might think it's obvious, but in fact, I'm gonna have a quite different view of a sustainable business to what we typically hear. And to do this, let me take you on a journey. So let me take you outside your home offices to uh, another country. So I'm gonna take you to the Great Rift Valley. So this stretch is across two continents and 6,000 kilometers from Lebanon and Asia to Mozambique and Africa. And it has some of the world's highest mountains, but it also has some of the world's deepest lakes. And one of these lakes is called Lake Magadi, which is in the Kenyan stretch of the Great Rift Valley. Now, you might think it's hard to imagine that you're here because you haven't seen it before. But in fact, you might have seen it before in not the small screen of your home computer, but on the big screen of a movie theatre, you might have seen it in the movie The Constant Gardener, based on the John le Carre novel of the same name. And indeed, millions of people around the world have seen this lake because they've seen this movie, but fewer than a thousand people call the lake their home. And one of these people is a gentleman called Emmanuel Soronga, who makes a living selling and herding goats. Now, for Emmanuel, it used to be that cash was king. It's cash that he'd get if he sold a goat. He'd have to check that cash at risk of forgery. He'd have to store it at risk of robbery. And to bank that cash, he had to walk to the nearest bank, which was one day away. So Emmanuel's life was really tough. He couldn't graze his goats in the greenest pastures. He had to always be within one day of a bank. But all of that changed in 2007 due to what I would call a sustainable business. And that sustainable business was Vodafone, the UK telecoms giant. Because in 2007, Vodafone launched M-Pesa, which is a mobile money service in Kenya. And that allowed Kenyans to transfer money using their mobile phones without ever having to deal with cash. And this transformed Emmanuel's life, right? He no longer needs to worry about forgery or robbery. He can grace his goats where he wants to. And he has a record of every single transaction on his phone. And we don't want to make a big thing out of just one story, but large-scale evidence shows that within the first seven years of the launch of M-Pesa, 200,000 households in Kenya got lifted out of poverty, And many of these households were headed up by women because it allowed them to move from agriculture to business and retail. So there was a big effect on gender parity. So that's one story that I have on Vodafone, but now let me tell you a quite different story. And this different story surrounds taxes. So in 2012, Vodafone became the first telecoms company around the world to release a tax transparency report showing how much tax they're paying to governments worldwide. And that's really important in telecoms because you could choose to locate your licenses in low tax countries. So I've got two questions for everybody here to think about. Which of these decisions created most value for society? That's the first question. And the second is which of these decisions, if it were not taken, would have led to the most public outrage? or worse than Vodafone's CSR rating or reputation? Now, I'm pretty sure that most people would agree with the answers. So which decision created most value for society? It was the first one. By launching a pesa they lifted 200,000 households out of poverty and contributed towards gender parity. But what would have been the outrage, turning to the second question, if Vodafone had not launched MPESA, it would have been nothing. Well, you don't get into trouble for not launching an innovation, like nobody would have boycotted Vodafone because they would have never thought it was ever possible to do this crazy idea of banking without a bank. But what is the outrage of not being transparent on tax? It could be huge. Right, and indeed, Vodafone themselves had suffered a nationwide boycott of its stores two years previously for allegedly dodging tax. So what is the message I'm giving with these two stories? It's to rethink our notion of sustainable business. But like we often think that sustainability is about the answer to the second question. Do no harm. Don't cheat on taxes. Don't pollute the environment. Don't mistreat your workers. And absolutely, sustainability is about that. That is really, really important. I'm not t- trying to underplay that. But what I'm doing is I want to shift our thinking on sustainability. Because you already knew that companies should do no harm, even before hearing my talk. So what I want to do is to provide a different perspective. I want to shift our view on sustainability towards the answer to the first question. Because I believe that given the scale of the world's challenges in 2021, it's not enough. For a company to just do no harm it needs to be actively doing good and actively creating value and so this is linked to the framework i introduced in a recent book so we often view the value that a company creates as being given by a pie and that pie can be split either to investors in the form of profits or to stakeholders of society in the form of higher taxes higher wages or lower carbon emissions. And we often think a sustainable company is one that splits the pie fairly, doesn't make too much money, make sure that there's enough for others to go around. And absolutely, that is part of sustainability. But what I want to stress is this approach to sustainability is limited. And it's limited for at least two reasons. The first is that if sustainability is only about splitting the pie differently, then, well, companies won't want to do it voluntarily. Right, so if sustainability means companies are less profitable, CEOs will practice sustainability to the minimum possible. And so the only way that we can impose sustainability is through regulating. But regulation can only lead to compliance with the law rather than CEOs being truly committed. They will just do the minimum possible to not flout the regulation. The second reason why sustainability can't just be about splitting the pie differently is that it's bad for investors now many people might think i don't care right we often like to portray investors as nameless faceless capitalists investors are them society is us and if we can take from them and give to us then it makes people much better off but investors are not them they are us they include parents saving for their children's education pension funds, investing for retirement, and insurance companies funding future claims. So any repurposing of business must take investors seriously. Investors play a critical role in the sustainability of the economy. So this is why my view of business, of sustainability, is it's about growing the pie. It's about actively creating value. Yes, we do want to increase the orange, but we do this not by giving society a greater share of what's already there, but by being relentlessly committed to innovation and excellence and coming up with some crazy ideas, right, like banking without a bank and creating value for society with those ideas. And the nice thing about creating value for society in that way, in growing the pie rather than splitting it, is that it's also good for investors. Because Vodafone genuinely launched Tempeza not to make money, but to solve a social problem. But as a byproduct, Vodafone was able to monetize it, and eventually investors benefited. So I view a sustainable business as one that creates profits only through creating value for society. So let's pick apart this definition. What right? those final four words won't be that new to you. You knew that sustainability was about creating value before hearing me talk, but what I want to stress is that it's important to create profits as well because a sustainable business must be sustainable for investors. But another important word here is only, what you can create profits through extracting value from society by polluting the environment, for example. And so the word only means that we start with creating value as the end goal, but if we create value successfully through innovating, through solving social problems, then ultimately a company will become more profitable. So at this point, you might think, well, everything Alex says, that sounds great. But it's a bit too good to be true. Right? Where's the evidence? Well, it would be great if indeed companies that were creating value for society were magically more profitable. But that seems like wishful thinking. So this is indeed why most of my work as a professor is to look at the rigorous evidence to show that actually in the data, it is the case that companies that serve society are also more profitable. And in the book, I go through all of this evidence, but I'm not going to go through this today because in the interest of time, I want to instead focus on how to put it into practice. How can a company become more sustainable? And so the answer is by being driven by purpose. So what's the word purpose actually mean? It's banded around a lot, but people often mention it without discussing what it means. So often companies might have a purpose statement like this. Our purpose is to serve customers, workers, suppliers, the environment and communities and investors. Sounds great, right? We often think that purpose is about altruism, but it's not, right? If we think about it, right, the word purpose is about being focused and targeted, right? A purpose meeting Is one with a clear agenda. If I do something on purpose, I do it deliberately. So what a purposeful company is, is one that clearly defines what it should be doing and importantly what it should not. So I define purpose as why an enterprise exists, who it serves, its reason for being and the role it plays in the world. So we have so many social problems out there. We've got the coronavirus, climate change, income inequality, automation, resource depletion, and so on. It is not your responsibility to solve all of the world's problems. Instead, you need to focus on the couple of problems that you can move the needle the most. Right. So it should be focused and targeted. Also, it should be as much about what not to do as what to do. So let me give some examples which i deliberately chosen from Singapore. So let's take OLAM, the agribusiness. Right? Its purpose is to uh, is to develop prosperous farmers and food systems, thriving communities, and regeneration of the living world. And why that's striking is it focuses on the environment and communities and suppliers, but it doesn't say something about customers and workers. Right? Even though customers and workers are important for many, many firms, But Olam says, well, what's particularly important for us as an agribusiness is the environment and communities and supplies, they are particularly material to us. And as we know, purpose is not just about a lofty sounding statement. We want to put it into practice. So how do we do that? Well, often it will involve trying to come up with measures to track whether you're on target. Let me go through another Singapore agribusiness just to balance it up, Wilmo International. Well, it has targets for the number of smallholder farmers that it enrols and it supports programmes in order to provide training and to disseminate best practise. And it tracks that just like it will track profits. What's another thing about putting purpose into practise, it's to do things to serve stakeholders rather than make money. And then use view profits as being a pride product out of serving your stakeholders. For example, Standard Chartered Singapore office has this Skills Future at SC program where they provide employees with skills development. Why? Because they know that technology is changing skills. They want their workers to get ahead of this. Now they do this without calculating. If I was to train my employees, they'll be this much more productive and I'll make this much more money. They just do this because they care about their employees as people. They want them to be skilled and to have training. Now, ultimately, yes, that will make them money. And my research supports this. It shows that if you treat your work as well, you become more profitable. But making more money was never the objective of this skills development program. It was genuine concern for your people. And you view profits as a byproduct. Okay, so in terms of further reading, so as I mentioned, I released this book um, just a few months ago called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. And why I wrote this is to highlight the business case for purpose. I think for too long, sustainability was viewed as an optional extra to be buried in a CSR department. I'm saying, no, this is something that CEOs should care about. It's fundamental to the long-term commercial success of your business. I'm a finance professor, I care about companies making money, but purpose is not at the expense of making money, it actually supports it. And this is not based on wishful thinking, but rigorous research. But often this rigorous research is written in very boring and turgid ways for academic journals. I wanted to translate it into simple language, bring it to life, with a clear framework for how to put it into practice and some real life examples. So I thought that this will hopefully be a valuable resource for anybody wanting to build a sustainable business. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. I'm so sorry that I'm not able to um, participate in the Q&A just because of the time zone. However, if anyone would like to follow up, please do drop me a note on LinkedIn via LinkedIn Messenger. Again, it's Alex Edmonds. I commit to answering uh, any other messages that I get. Thank you again and enjoy the rest of the conversation.
1: So I hope everyone enjoyed Prof Edmund's talk from where he was. It was certainly an engaging one for me. So now that we have heard from all of our speakers, we will now be turning to our three discussants who will be sharing their views towards the speakers' presentations. So let's introduce these discussants in no order of importance. Uh, firstly, we have Mr Muni Martni, who is founder of Panaki Partners, a Singapore funds management firm. Muneep is also Chief Investment Officer and Lead Project Manager of the Global PENVEST Fund. And secondly, we have uh, Ms. Melissa Lowe, who is Research Fellow at the Energy Studies Institute at the National University of Singapore. Last but not least, we have Mr. Virapan Swabinathan, who is Founder and Director of the Sustainable Living Lab. So um, over to you, uh, Munip, if you'd like to just start us off with your five minutes. Discussion. Thank you.
4: Sure. Thank you so much. I hope you can hear me here. Uh, First of all, thank you to IPS. Uh, Thank you to Professor Tay and also uh, uh, Professor Edmonds for uh, setting the stage here. Uh, A bit of background uh, you know, um, I am one of those nameless, uh, faceless, and in the past, maybe shameless investors that uh, Professor Edmonds talked about. Uh, who in the past would, were argued as being the cause of a lot of the, let's say, unsustainability in our economic and uh, system. Uh, I've, for 25 years, done maybe that, but in the last few years, uh, I've definitely been focused on sustainability. And uh, in, in, uh, I've also then gone ahead and become an NUS MEM uh, alumni as well. Uh, I graduated with a Masters of Environmental Management, so I have some, some, uh, some basic backing I could say to some of the things that I'm going to share with you today. So one of the things that I, I, there's two points I'm gonna make today uh, on the back of the conversations we've had and the presentations we've had by the two professors. First, uh, let me start by saying that I think it's very important, uh, something that uh, Professor Edmund said that Redefining the notion of sustainability, uh, that has to be done at various levels, especially for practitioners, market practitioners like myself. Uh, I'm talking about the investment industry, but in the same vein, if you talk to people who are in industry, manufacturing, policy making, uh, urban design, uh, legislation, everyone needs to redefine sustainability. They need to redefine their theories around what they've been doing for the last 25 years. As an investor, I've had to redefine how risk return is being impacted or is being calculated for companies into my investment theory. I've now included impact into that. In the same vein, if you look at policymakers, whether it be urban design makers, they have to decide how they're going to have to redefine uh, the sustainability theory behind urban design. And this is where, again, once again, I want to thank uh, the theory being tested by researchers such as Professor Tay and also uh, Edmonds that without the help of institutes such as IPS, SSIA, and even the work from various other academic institutions, without that, practitioners like us would not have the proof for change in our philosophy, our thinking, our theory, and then bring it into practice. So I think that should not be underestimated as a point that what we are sharing here today People like myself, who've in the past been using different practices, now are really embracing, understanding, looking at the proof. It's giving us confidence to take that that leap of faith in all our individual sectors. And once again, kudos to uh, the various researchers and academics who uh, give us practitioners that uh, you you could say uh, confidence. The second point very quickly I will make is that purpose. When we uh, Edmonds Alex Edmonds uh, uh, defines purpose in that company, the biggest challenge as a practitioner for myself as an investor is how do you define purpose for a company? How do you find companies with purpose? And he gave his definition, which is about improving the society. On a practical level, we've taken it another level. What we think as investors is that we want to find companies that make a change in the industry that they're in. You know, because if you can, as a company. If you are, let's say, uh, a, a packaging company, if you are a telecom company, if you're even an investment manager like ourselves, if you change the industry that you're in and in a positive way, you will have a purpose. And that purpose therefore can focus your team, focus your philosophy, focus your process, even therefore focus your profit. And I think that's where expecting a company to be perfect is not correct. Expecting a company to have purpose is a definite must. And, and, and from, again, that goes back to for me, uh, for my team, and I'm very happy to have a co-panelist, Melissa Lowe, who's also one of our stewards of purpose for my firm, uh, guiding us, to making sure that we, as an investment management firm, what can we do that brings best practices into our industry, which is funds management, which then leads to uh, the whole industry changing and therefore leading to purpose. Uh, having a purpose and therefore leading to a better outcome uh, for the society. And and with that, I think I will uh, pass on to my co-panelists and happy to answer any questions on the practicality of how we actually give examples, I can give examples later, on how we actually find companies with purpose uh, and how they have proven uh, for us to be uh, uh, invaluable in our portfolio. So with that, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Mini. And uh, thank you for passing the the debate over to uh, Melissa. So Melissa, the time is yours.
5: Hi. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you, uh, Dr. Ong and IPS for inviting me to be on this panel. I'm grateful, of course, to Professor Edmunds and Professor Tay for their earlier presentations, and Munib, of course, for his insightful remarks. Uh, I would like to focus my short remarks uh, on what a green recovery means for Singapore. As as all of you know, COVID-19 has certainly been a shock to the global economy and individuals. Um, We do know now that countries are already demonstrating their commitment to addressing the ongoing climate crisis while working to contain the virus and to manage its impacts. We know that countries around the world want to build back better and ensure a green recovery. But it remains to be seen what this will look like in practice. In broad terms, a green recovery might mean an aggressive shift away from fossil fuels. But for Singapore, it can be much more than that. It means building up capabilities for a competitive and sustainable low carbon future. The goal as we navigate through this pandemic should be to ensure an inclusive and climate resilient transition. As uh, Prof Tay earlier mentioned, the Singapore government moved quickly to ensure that such plans are on paper and on track. In March last year, 2020, uh, Singapore submitted its enhanced nationally determined contributions uh, to peak emissions at 65 million tons of CO2 equivalent around 2030, and its long-term low emissions development strategy to halve emissions from its 2030 peak, 65 million tons of CO2 equivalent to 33 million tons CO2 equivalent by 2050, with a view to achieving net zero emissions as soon as viable in the second half of the century. Major fiscal packages were created, drawing down nearly $100 billion from past reserves this financial year to help Singaporeans tide over and position the country for future growth and to support a competitive transition to a greener future. The Ministry of Sustainability and the Environment, formerly known as the Ministry of Environment and Water Resources, has said that it plans to create 4,000 new and upgraded green jobs this year and 55,000 over the next decade as Singapore pursues sustainable development. Where are these jobs gonna come from, you ask? Uh, Jobs are likely to open up in environmental services and the food and agri-technology industries as Singapore hopes also to enhance food security amid the pandemic. The question remains, however, do we have the deep expertise in climate science and environmental technologies to reduce emissions at the scale and speed that we want? And indeed, maybe a second question is required. Is expertise enough to ensure a smooth green recovery? So realistically, reducing emissions in an absolute fashion is challenging for Singapore. As companies here pivot away from fossil fuels and towards lower carbon alternatives, we can be sure that job cuts and the need to retrain workers to go into other industries uh, will be important. It's, in fact, already a reality and will need to be addressed very quickly. Identifying retrenched workers from fossil-related industries and ascertaining such desire to be reskilled into other jobs is not a given. It's extremely challenging. Much depends on the role of these workers and whether their skill sets are currently transferable, say, for instance, to the clean technology sector that we talk about a lot. A green recovery can only happen if we aggressive develop new capabilities and expertise for both immediate and long-term needs so that Singapore can be at the forefront of green innovation. I mean, one immediate, what we call low hanging fruit that can happen right now is to prepare our families, educational institutions and individuals for the change that's happening or coming. Everyone needs to be on board with the message that green collar jobs and a clean economic recovery is essential to building back better as well as achieving Singapore's climate goals which will have to be enhanced again in five years time. That's under the Paris Agreement. COVID-19 has revealed that society places emphasis on measures of success that go beyond GDP growth, including happiness, health, equality for all, for citizens and non-citizens alike. So instead of only saying that we need to create jobs for Singaporeans and lay the foundations for future growth and improve long-term competitiveness, we should also qualify that such jobs should be inclusive and they take into consideration our position on climate change. We must not shy away from difficult conversations. Singapore is a small, open and trade-dependent nation, and so we should expect such trade-offs, including those that require us to choose between economic growth, sustaining middle-income jobs such as the ones that um, uh, Senior Minister Thaman mentioned this morning, and emissions reduction. But the key is to have those important conversations so that we can find innovative solutions together. We must do this if we want such recovery to be truly inclusive. Coming to the end, uh, to conclude, While it is the Singapore government's priority or all government's priority to create jobs and strengthen social safety nets during this unprecedented crisis, everyone has a part to play in creating the right environment to develop a pipeline of inclusive and climate resilient jobs and competitive advantages so that we may continue to survive using less resources for a low carbon future to become a reality. A green recovery doesn't mean anything if we come out of this pandemic with the same mindset and actions as before. And so, therefore, as a society, we should begin by thinking critically and acting more consciously so that we can recover better. Thank you. And I'll, I'm happy to pass the time on to my colleague Vera um, for his remarks. Thank you.
1: Yes, Vera, over to you, please.
6: All right. Thanks very much, Dr. Ong, Thank you, Melissa, and the insightful speakers before me for their comments. Uh, so as a brief introduction, I consult in the space between sustainability, technology innovation and community development, and much of the work involves bringing together multiple stakeholders MNCs, local SMEs, government agencies and communities to pursue SDG projects in Asia. So for my remarks, I will basically focus on the role of innovation technology as we pursue a green recovery uh, in Singapore. So I think like many of you know, Singapore's technology innovation hub, and there are many exciting things happening in the technology space, in, especially when it comes to sustainability. So three of those areas uh, which I'll talk about is about food, we have alternative proteins from urban agriculture, we have energy, we are trying to phase out internal combustion engines, we are, there's a promise of a hydrogen economy uh, that will fully replace uh, the, the carbon economy that we have, and also we have digital marketplaces to distribute energy as well. In terms of waste, a lot of work is being happening in terms of material recovery from electronic waste, uh, recovering uh, from food, from plastics, uh, and so on. But of course, we must temper our enthusiasm. I think one of the things technology spaces is there's always something new and shiny uh, happening, but they always come with their own set of trade offs. Uh, I think as we consider some of these new developments, we need to think about the increase in energy use that we expect. So, as it is, urban agriculture and the manufacturing of alternative proteins and data centers, all of these are using more energy than traditional agriculture, than you know, uh, 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 in the internet data centers as they used to be. Uh, so I think we must keep an eye on that. We also need to keep an eye on the health impact. So what is the long-term health impact, for example, of alternative proteins, uh, about uh, uh, intensive digital technology use? I think we can see that that overnight, right, uh, in, uh, not say overnight, but over the last year, in fact, uh, not just adults but even kids, right, uh, have been using digital technologies and so on. Uh, in fact, I read about this joke uh, that basically said that you know, uh, the kid has five Zoom meetings in a day and wishes that some of these were actually emails, right? So these are conversations happening younger and younger, but what is the impact of that in terms of the mental health, in terms of the emotional development or social development of people? And of course, uh, I think one of the things is access availability, which we've always known hasn't been there. And COVID-19 simply exposed and accelerated that lack of access and that lack of availability. So similarly, in sustainable food, energy, jobs, would it only be available for those economically privileged? I think these are questions that are worth considering uh, as we look at technology. Now, the other aspect of it is innovation, right? I think one of the things in innovation philosophy that we need to really think about uh, as we move towards a green recovery is moving the language of exploitation to the language of regeneration. So what, what do I mean by that, right? So when you talk about exploitation in, in innovation, it's about like, oh, let's conquer a marketplace. Let's go, you know, capture this and capture that. That, that kind of, of aggressive, uh, exploitative language has a lot to do with how we actually approach some of these things. Now as we try to widen the space uh, for including people in the innovation process, I think we need to think also about regeneration. And of course of regeneration is not new, it comes to permaculture uh, from the 70s and earlier, and it's the idea that whatever activities that we're doing uh, to develop new solutions to the problems that are emerging we do so in a way that we don't create more problems. or We do so in a way that tends to improve uh, the current situation as it is. A good example to talk about regeneration is some of the soil. Uh, as we try and grow plants, crops, and try to increase the intensity of it, are we keeping the soil healthy? Uh, are we packing nutrients back in there? Uh, so in, Some companies are doing great work in this area. Uh, for example, one of these uh, projects that I've uh, learned about uh, it's about Interface. Uh, interface has the uh, factory as a forest, as they call it, that's what the project name is, and the idea is to build a regenerative factory. So ideas like that and the underlying philosophy of innovation, I believe, has to change. Another exciting area, of course, is in the space of circular economy. Uh, I think circular economy has become more mainstream today. Uh, it's really about closed loop manufacturing, remanufacturing, repair, and I think the excellent Personal responsibility act the Singapore government has passed is a great sign a great step that actually we're taking this seriously as a country. Uh, Circular economy also means that every product that today is physical, we got to think about how that product uh, can be delivered as a service, uh, how we can move from physical to digital, and so on. And last but not least, the 3P partnership model is something that we know works, but we also know it's very difficult to do. I think in this context, um, while Singapore is small, uh, what we can serve is a role as a catalyst, as an initiator of such 3P projects to, you know, signpost the way for others in terms of how we can work together and deliver some of these complex projects to very complex problems in a way that tells others, hey, you know, you can do it this way too. And so that our country can also benefit from not just the green recovery of Singapore, but the green recovery of the region and the world at large. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Vera. So um, we've actually now entered the Q&A uh, segment of this forum and what I'd like to do would be actually to share with you uh, some share with the speaker as well as the discussant some of the questions that have uh, emerged in the pigeonhole and uh, I'll probably ask um, the one that stands out to me the most and I think that can be uh, addressed by Munip if you do not mind. And so uh, Damien is the uh, person who wrote this question and he asked, is environmental sustainability um, actually for the financially able, right, for the able? So he, he said that Prof Edmunds actually talked about big MNCs and uh, Munich yourself also um, started focusing on environmental on environment and sustainability after making it uh, in your earlier career. So is it actually cost effective then for SMEs to practice
3: uh, environment and
4: sustainability. Sure. Uh, so, so I think one of the things that people uh, have to keep in mind, whether you're a small company like us, uh, SME, uh, medium to large enterprise, or even a mega MNC, uh, your environmental footprint. You should know. Once you have know your environmental footprint, from there you can work backwards as to what you can achieve. So, and that is something that when we look at companies across the globe, whether it be a large MNC with global footprint or a small, uh, medium-sized company in, let's say, South Africa, we do not expect them to have the same environmental, let's say, targets that uh, are maybe ascribed by uh, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, a standard. Uh, What we expect them to do is to know through their own stakeholder engagement what exactly they can actually deliver on. The most important word here is stakeholder engagement. If you haven't as a company, whether it's an SME, uh, a small company like ourselves, or even a large MNC, if you have not done a stakeholder engagement, the chances of you even knowing what you can do or cannot do in terms of environmental impact uh, cannot be done. And from that perspective, I don't think uh, environmental, positive environmental impact is only for the rich or for the big companies it can be done at various levels. Every small little step uh, actually makes a difference. So hopefully that answers the question on sustainable, uh, environmental sustainability and financial uh, wherewithal of a company.
1: Yes, uh, thank you very
2: much, can Maneep. I think Simon. Can I in on this? I started very broad, but uh, Estebai and I have also worked on the question of SMEs, innovation, and how to uh, basically help move change. Um, I think the questioner has a good point. Uh, many of the growth stories will be about the bigger companies because they have the capacity to engage stakeholders, think through their options, generate new options, uh, create technologies. What Olam and Wilma have done really set a benchmark. But one of the changes is that whether those changes the big companies make will trickle down the supply chain. So Olam, for example, and Wilma deal not only their own products they grow, But a lot of smallholders, the resource sector like palm oil is often uh, uh, really millions of smallholders trickling up the supply chain. And even on preventing fires or preventing harm, it's easier for the big companies to do it. And the critical part is to help trickle down that chain into the smallholders. Similarly for innovation, one of Olam's challenges and uh, opportunities is to create distribution of their data about how the farmers can grow. So Sunny, who has become really a leader in this area, talks about his sense of purpose, as uh, Moon, uh, uh, Professor Edmunds talked about, to put information in the hands of all these smallholders across distant rural uh, uh, areas, so that they can plant at the right time, they can avoid mistakes and they can reap innovation. Similarly for Wilma, in trying to bring in the smallholders and many other resource companies, so I think that it's not a question of uh, the, the big companies' go only. The effects on the supply chain can be to bring up. The challenge will be if we do it too quickly and wrongly, the pressure will be to cut off SMEs. Uh, for example, banks, they're starting to face questions. If they're a green bank and all three Singaporean banks have made major steps forward. And in Japan, I was an advisory board of MUFG, they've made a major step forward. Do they engage the people who have not moved forward with them, or do they stop the finance? If they stop the finance, they may make their shareholders and green uh, activists happy, but they lose leverage to make positive change.
1: Thank you very much, Prof, Prof. Te. So um, we actually have another question, and that pertains to Prof Edmund's statement. I think that relates to what Prof Te uh, and Munich actually talked about briefly. And uh, Lynette says that she strongly resonates with Prof Edmund's statement about sustainability creating value, uh, but she feels we are not seeing invest- investors actually rewarding sustainable companies. And she wants to know what speakers think. Is there enough ir- incentive?
4: Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, uh, as even Professor Tay said, that there's a substantial amount of uh, funds going into ESG funds. Now, uh, I think a lot of them are very... Uh, arguably, some of those ESG funds can be very basic ESG, like just exclusionary ESG. Uh, but I do think increasingly companies, whether it be listed companies or even unlisted companies, uh, whether it be through cheaper loans that banks are giving, there's no doubt. If you go to a bank and tell them, I am going to be creating a coal-fired uh, thermal generator, they're going to say, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. If you go and tell them, I'm, by the way, creating a hydro water or water related or geothermal, they'll be saying, please come in. You know, we will give you a discounted rate. So whether it be cheaper lending, whether it be equity in private equity space, or whether it be investors like myself in listed equities, there is no doubt uh, money being uh, focused and funneled towards companies that are focused and have a purpose. With sustainability beyond just environment it has to be around human capital in our view it around about social capital and it has to be around environmental capital if those three four three forms of capital are being respected and rewarded only then can financial capital gain and that's the purpose that we believe in Kareen, could i chip in on this yes sure um, i think that
2: i understand the call for urgency and a little bit of impatience there uh, if you look at the non-esg funds the non-green funds they're still far larger than the ESG funds. And the number of green companies is still, frankly, in the minority. But that's how change happens. Sometimes it's a kind of leading edge, and then they'll pull the early adopters. And and I think that really the last three years have seen rapid change. Uh, The number of ESG funds in our region, the steps that, say, Tomasic Holdings have made now public, uh, the steps that we expect GIC to announce quite soon. And I know they're one of your sponsors for this overall series. Um, I really think that the the corner has been turned and I expect the rate of change to be exponentially much faster. More can happen and financial reward is critical. For example, to go back to Wilma and not to tout the stock or anything like that, they innovatively negotiated a deal with a number of banks where they meet a certain number of KPI on the ESG front. They will get a lower rate uh, on their loans. So they are being financially rewarded. But on the other hand, palm oil as a whole is not being financially rewarded. Even for the companies that produce sustainable palm oil as opposed to exploitative, non-sustainable palm oil, uh, they don't get a price difference in the market. So there are still a lot of gaps in the market in terms of selling of resources, commodities. Energy pricing is similar, and I think Melissa knows this much better than I do. Great, Uh,
1: Melissa, do you have anything to
5: add? Yeah, just very quickly. um I, I do worry about um, the impact of COVID on uh, renewable energy investment, for instance, and um, I mean, if I were j- just to look at, at, at Singapore, for example, the market has also evolved quite uh, a lot the last few years because we now have an open electricity market, as, as, as all of you know. And um, there's a lot of competition, right? And so prices already from fossil generation has come down somewhat and uh, you know renewable energy while it's at parity so solar energy in Singapore what happens when you get rainy days like the last few weeks Uh, you know it's also tricky to to maintain grid stability and uh, reliability which Singapore obviously um, uh, prides uh, when there's intermittency involved in renewable energy and I think the same I suppose, uh, of course, far more complex issues exist in the rest of the region, but I dare say that um, we need to pay attention. A lot of the the models that we are still relying on for policymaking would, were done with pre-COVID data, something to keep in mind, right? So even, even Singapore's targets, if you think about it, we announced it in February uh, during budget. So that was done by um, senior minister, Teo Chi that was announced in February. This is before COVID absolutely hit us. So the targets that we set and other countries set might might be very ambitious in light of COVID if it doesn't let up. So something just to add to the conversation. Yes.
1: Thank you very much, Melissa. And I think you raised an important point about the unexpected. right? So just wondering, um, with COVID, having COVID, having hit us, what do you think is the impact of, you know, COVID and this pandemic on, you know, the trajectory of green growth, right? And and sustainable corporations, right? What do you foresee is the impact of it?
5: Right, um, thanks for that, Karine. So earlier last year, actually, when COVID hit a lot of, uh, maybe I just speak for myself and not the other colleagues in the energy, environment, sustainability space. Actually, a lot of us felt very, um, we, we felt like we had to mute our voice somewhat because what could be more important than dealing with the pandemic, right? So we, you wanna go out there and talk about climate action, talk about you know, the, the green transition, very difficult when people are fighting for their lives. I think we've, we've, at least here, we've reached a steady state but not so much for the rest of the world. Right, so I think we still approach um, um, the narrative with a lot of caution because uh, we do know that there are international talks that are planned for the end of the year. But my sense is that um, the inclusiveness might be might be at stake because if people, uh, stakeholders beyond states uh, do not get to attend, right? So civil society, businesses and, and various other stakeholders are not allowed to attend the COP uh, the climate negotiations meetings, for example, biodiversity meetings and so on, um, it might sort of dilute the critic's uh, voice that you mentioned in your opening remarks. So I think it's really important to pay attention to um, some of these sort of, um, you know, we hear all these murmurings of, of uh, people getting upset about non-inclusivity with regard to the recovery, which I mentioned in my remarks, um, but nothing really concrete institutional is being done about it. Um, so, So I think we, the pace would have to be adjusted because once people start to realize that um, inclusivity is very important, uh, I think this will probably slow down um, the, the pace of, of green growth uh, in a way that, because it includes uh, inclusiveness essentially.
1: Very important insights, mm. and I'm just wondering also to uh, Simon and Muneeb, right? Do you think the pandemic would actually spark a mindset of you know short termism among companies as they are trying to rebound right from the crisis, um, economically, and therefore you know might have a have a trade off with sustainability. Simon or Muneeb, any one of you can okay, go
4: ahead. Bira, would you like to go first? Uh, no, please, Professor, you go.
2: Okay, I'll. Uh- I think what Melissa said in your question is a real danger. That's why I meant that we are kind of an important juncture or inflection point. We either get better or we really will be in uh, first this crisis, we'll muddle through this crisis, and then we'll bump into another longer-term crisis called the climate change effects, which are already starting to be felt and visible. But I am slightly more optimistic than Melissa, at least today, um, where I think that there are ways to twin the two. Uh, A lot of our discussion about resilience, you know, producing things nearer will avoid carbon. Some of the jobs that can be created in the green economy can be very inclusive. For example, there are a number of people who are trying to retrofit solar panels and other energy-saving devices in more temperate countries. And this can be done by fairly skilled, but not really rocket scientists. It can be a trained uh, skill to help of these kids to help mass adoption of energy-saving devices. Um, Similarly, I mentioned how nature-based solutions might be a great effort for Southeast Asia, locking up carbon by regenerating forests, mangrove swamps, peatlands, which are a great source of the haze, and carbon, an outsized problem globally. Um, This regeneration isn't by professors like me going and volunteering to dig canals. It will be about bringing livelihoods and rewards to the local rural communities, to really give them another source of income besides growing sustainable crops. So I think that while the danger is there, we have to recognize it and enable and push forward the solutions that both help the recurring pandemic and the economic recovery pandemic together with the greener, lower carbon solutions. So while we've not mentioned sustainability as much as we have climate so far, I think that's important because sustainably brings in that human dimension. Those laborers, those workers, the citizens who need protection from the pandemic, as well as the climate change crisis that is emerging. Thank you
1: very much, Swamin. You need have anything to
4: add? Yes. Uh, well, I'm a very optimistic person. You can see behind me is to infinity and beyond. So, you know, I'm going to be the most optimistic and finish on an optimism note. I actually think 20 years from now, and I, without taking away from the pandemic that we are living through now and many people are suffering through, uh, if I look 20 years out, I'm very optimistic around the green energy, the genie is out of the bag, the whole decarbonization, the whole idea of how hydrogen can be used, how electric vehicles can be used in Singapore, and I'm talking about Singapore here, that I do think we have got some really good uh, momentum within Singapore, with, even with COVID and uh, the government having to deal with COVID. Beyond that, uh, we, are, we are going to see a, a very good decarbonization policy and process and uh, eventual uh, actualization within Singapore within the next 20, 30 years. So I, I, I do think we will hit our NDC targets uh, Melissa, I hope we do.
1: Thank you, uh, Vineet and Simon. So, uh, I think there is actually quite an interesting question from the audience. Actually, more than one person has asked the question of how the government um, can actually play a part in encouraging more sustainable businesses uh, to, to get up right, in this ecosystem. And, uh, maybe, um, Vera, would you like to make any comments on this?
6: Sure, I. I mean, I'm not from the government, <laughs> so so I think this will this will, this will merely uh, come from a from an advisory standpoint in terms of uh, what I've seen work elsewhere. Uh, I think, of course, I mean, governments in most cases uh, play a regulatory role to set up the framework for it, uh, and particularly in Singapore, there's another uh, tool which is the tool of the grants, right, which they often use to great effect. Um, so, so I I would w- expect like so. I think one of the things that, that I did suggest, uh, in fact, not not too long ago, uh, was about You know how for digital transformation in singapore we actually have a a very elaborate grant scheme for smes to tap on to uh, engage uh, digital services uh, for their point of sale uh, and a bunch of other uh, services something similar we could consider and we could roll out for smes in the green transformation space i think that's something worth considering Uh, of course there may not be as many or as rich a uh, variety of solutions available for the average SME to pick and choose. Uh, but I think those are mechanics that can be worked through. Uh, but in general, I think taking that sort of uh, constituted approach, which I think is not out of the question for our government uh, to put together, I think that's something uh, that's going to really help SMEs. Um, I work with a lot of SMEs uh, through my banking clients, and uh, one of the things that that you know they always, uh, uh, or rather the SMEs who I work with uh, mention is that they want stuff that's ready to go, because they don't have a lot of time to think about it. Right? So they need stuff that's pre-packaged uh, a little bit, uh, plug and play, you know. And so I think solutions like that will tend to work better, uh, because you know, SMEs are generally uh, you know, smaller, especially in decision-making capacity, and uh, they just want to run with it, right? They want to go with it. They're not thinking too far ahead.
1: Thank you, Vera. Yes, Simon.
2: Can I just chip in on this as uh, big as I can? I think I agree, Vera, about setting the standards and the laws. But I think in this sense, I differ a bit from Professor Edmonds. I don't want to overlook this in our region and Singapore. Those ESG reporting standards are relatively new in Singapore. We need to drill down still further, and we need to get assurance that the companies really are not just a matter of policy, but putting them into practice. So the verification, monitoring, and clear reporting remain essential in Singapore and across our region. Without this, the green investments won't really come because you might just be buying into greenwash a lot of PR. Nothing wrong with PR per se, but just only PR rather than actual substance. But the government is also, especially in Singapore, a large uh, landowner, a building owner, a procurer of services. So obviously, it has to practice what it preaches. Uh, I would look forward to Singapore ro- government rolling out a number of... Uh, efforts in their own uh, uh, holdings. And that's why I mentioned Tomasic and GIC. Additionally, we already know that in Singapore's infrastructure plans, we plan to escalate Changi Airport. Of course, it's been delayed, pandemic, but it remains a long-term goal. We'll have a mega port at Tuas. These should become hallmark projects, hallmarks for efficiency, innovation, reliability, and also sustainability and low carbon. In the past, airports and ports have always been attacked for their carbon miles. So I think that really we need to demonstrate in our own uh, sort of anchor projects here in Singapore that the next generation of infrastructure can really be green. And then when we do that, we should go to the market, as DPM We Week has said, and look for funding for this rather than from taxes and create a green finance market with real depth and anchored to the steady returns of these landmark projects here in Singapore.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. So, um, I actually have a, a follow up question. I'm um, just wondering, from your experience in the space of innovation and, and green growth, um, do you have any thoughts or even examples, right, of um, you know, uh, some projects that you think have great potential, um, to be to be launched, right, and to be actually supported uh, by the government. Right, or any other investor, in that sense.
6: Right, so I mean, um, the one, one of the perils of working in my MySpace that you can't usually name all the people you work with, right? so, so I will talk about this fictional packaging company, they are a very large packaging company uh, in the world, um, and, and one of the things that they quickly realized is, at least uh, about two years back, is that the time for single-use plastics you know, is soon to be over, the, the clock is running out on them. Um, and they took a global effort uh, to actually figure out what would be the next evolution of their company uh, itself uh, from a producer of single use plastics and single use packaging to one that basically provides services for reusable packaging. It's a big shift, it's a, a multi billion dollar company, and it's a huge shift uh, for them to, to consider that. Um, I think what, so so thinking of a company of that standpoint, I mean, such a company is not going to engage in activities because. The government wants to do x y and Z. they do it for their own survival right that's the starting point point. Um, and then i guess the question that our government has is that if you want to invite such companies you want to invite such organizations you want to encourage them to pursue those dreams those transformation initiatives in singapore then what can we offer right as a country uh to such organizations uh then i think i think uh, i i will probably a uh, you know, follow-up with uh, what uh, Prof Tay mentioned about uh, creating the environment, the ecosystem and, and the landmark projects that signal that we are welcome for these things. And of course, when those companies are actually here, uh, having the talent, the space and all the things that you need whenever you want companies to come in here to actually develop those projects. But more importantly, uh, I think I'm, I spent some time in intellectual property. It's also with the IP regime behind some of these things and the, to be able to protect and also you know, distribute some of these technologies. Um, many companies who come to Singapore for such innovation projects, they view Singapore simply as a stepping stone. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that at least they consider us a stepping stone, but a stepping stone to the larger region. I think we need to take our leadership role in this context, this very specific context, uh, quite seriously. I, I feel sometimes that you know, we may not really position ourselves that way, out of respect for our neighbours, or maybe some of the reasons, uh, but I think uh, if we truly want to signal to the world uh, that, that we are a gateway for some of these specific types of initiatives and projects, uh, then there's a lot we could do uh, in this respect.
1: Thank you Vera, I, I thought that's a really excellent point, and it was a question that came up for me as well, because uh, the Singapore National Climate Change Secretariat indicates that uh, Singapore has the potential to develop into a green growth hub, Right. so this was actually explicitly mentioned. So I. I was interested to know how that vision, you know, would look like uh, in practice to to all of the speakers and and discussants. Um, Yeah, to you, what is your view of that?
2: If I could begin and perhaps on the most general one, I think that really our strengths come in as Singapore as a place of partnerships and also a sort of experimental lab space. Um, Now, I, I don't mean to quibble about words, but we want to be more than like just a gateway for people just pass through. We want to make sure that they are rooted here in Singapore, and where possible, we uh, start and curate partnerships uh, with multinationals who partner with the local country of Singapore, and then go out into the region. Uh, So it's sort of two parties, and then a third country collaboration of embedding it, say in Myanmar or whichever country partner there is. We can do this in new technologies, and sometimes there will be requirements for uh, regulatory shifts, for example, autonomous vehicles, right? So Singapore is committed to do that. And the Smart City Initiative, therefore, should be steadily rolled out into other urban spaces across Asia, where possible, through partnerships. So the government has to be enabling this, the partnerships in Singapore with foreign companies and Singaporean companies, and then the export of these goods and services and uh, policy initiatives across the region. I think that will be the critical step to really making Singapore a green, more than a hub, just a green generator of growth uh, and you're right i think there is a lot of mixed calls in the region uh, sometimes singaporeans uh, are sometimes too aggressive for our neighbors they might resent us they feel they can go direct to the markets but other times people recognize the value we can bring and add not just as a middleman but really create that value added and that will be the critical part for singapore's uh, participation in the green ning of our region
1: Thank you very much. Simon. So it sounds like you are in accord with uh, Vera on that as well, to, to bring Singapore more than being just a middleman, but actually uh, being yes. a major hub.
2: And particularly in investment and finance and not just technology. Right.
1: right thank you. Munip um, and uh, Melissa, any views on this vision? I'm curious to know how... Yeah,
2: uh, I'm
4: going to be slightly controversial here, <laughs> if okay, I may. Sure. So, I mean, this is about perspectives. This is about different perspectives, right? So one of the things I would take, uh, let's say, uh, uh, inspiration from is if you look at the United Nations SDGs, right? United Nations SDGs, there's 17 of them. The 17th one is all about partnerships. Uh, the other thing that we talked about is that we, when we look at companies, we want to know what is their purpose. And especially if their purpose is not about doing, being everything to everyone all the time. If we as Singapore want to be part of a greener region, i think we also in singapore have to realize what is the strength we have and let's say there'll be certain parts of the united nations sdgs if we are almost let's say replicating united nations sdg 17 there might be someone who is much better at being let's say the nature based solution hub you know let's give them uh, you know uh, the due consideration and support whether it be one of our neighbors who actually has the biggest sink or the biggest uh, carbon capture potential so i think We need to be, as much as as a Singaporean, I want everything to be here and everything to be focused in Singapore. I think if we want the region to really come with us, we need to be a bit more open-minded to being uh, sharing in this responsibility. Otherwise, uh, if we're just sitting here doing a lot of the brainstorming, the execution needs to be done on a regional basis. And for that, we need partnerships with our neighbors. And there'll be certain areas where they should develop this skill set with our support and therefore have a hub there for, let's say nature-based solution in another country for water in another country. Why not take a broader base and we be SDG 17. That's my sort of, let's say one piece of advice. uh, Just jump in
2: quickly to clarify in case I misunderstood. I I misspoke. I I don't mean that everything has to be in Singapore exclusively. I do take that we have to work in partnership. But when we work in partnership, it doesn't mean that the nature-based solutions should be only addressed by the countries with the largest nature, because they will have difficulty and challenges in verification, monitoring, and other carbon services. So there are strengths we have as an existing financial hub, the level of trust we've generated, uh, and then we can bring this into partnership with our various neighbors across the region. So I think. Exactly. I just didn't want to be misunderstood. Yeah,
4: and, and, and just as an example, if you look at, for example, Singapore could be the place where we monetize uh, and put the structure around the financial in vehicles that allow our neighbors to, uh, you know, through their measurement, through their capacity, uh, collaborate with us. So our strength is the financial markets, creating the green financial markets with the, I agree with you, Professor, uh, it's, it's all about collaboration here. Wonderful.
1: Yes, thank you so much, uh, Munib and Simon.
5: How about Melissa? Do you have any uh, comments? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if uh, you know, I follow Munib and, and be a bit controversial as well. I thought it might be valuable to our discussion to talk about <clears throat> what the costs are for green growth, right? Um, particularly energy. I think it, um, somebody raised in the in the questions about data centers, for example. I thought that's, that's a really interesting point because um, it, it may, may well be true, right? That when we invite um, major companies to come here and set up shop, um, that, that it, come, it comes with a cost. And mo- a lot of times it comes at an energy price, uh, emissions will increase as well, um, to the point where I think the, the person who asked the question is alluding to the fact that Singapore had to issue a moratorium. On, on new data centers because it would likely exceed our, our energy uh, you know, available capacity, for example, power generation capacity. Uh, while we are at a point today where uh, we have excess capacity or nearly two times the amount of energy generation capacity, um, this is likely to be eaten up almost completely by the new data centers coming on board. So we need to keep in mind that green growth, yeah, even if they are green data centers, um, you know what is the trajectory for Singapore in the long term? It doesn't make sense to me anyway. Um, if if the share of the pie, of energy and emissions, keeps growing, well, you know, in the in the context of the of the target, we are, we plan to peak at sixty five. So there's still room for growth, actually. Um, I think in twenty seventeen uh, Singapore's emissions was at fifty one million tons. So we're still planning for growth, and I think that's what, in some ways, a lot of people still don't understand that we're not actually moving towards absolute reduction just yet we're moving towards an increase in the rate decrease in the rate of increase right so I, I worry a lot about what we're teaching you know um, kids in schools and because sometimes it, even simple math or you know projections like this can be quite challenging uh, even I, to, to be honest even I when I first started uh, in research it was it was a bit of a challenging concept right I'm not a math uh, you know I'm not from 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 Well, not very strong in math anyway, but I think this is is logic and uh, we need to pay attention to some of these um, trade-offs that I talked about. Um, Another thing that I thought would be helpful to to think about is um, the kind of pressures that are on our government to achieve this target, right? And I have a little bit of anxiety over, um, you know, when we talk about, about climate change, climate action, you know, nobody really has a monopoly on it, right? Everyone has a part to play. And I, I worry because I see some of the the tone uh, and some of the the discussion, um, maybe even a climate motion coming up in Parliament, that this issue could be overly politicized. Um, it, you know, I certainly do not hope that climate change becomes a bipartisan issue or, or excessively politicized in Singapore. Very worrying uh, if this is a trend that continues. I think we should all try and work together. Actually, I know there's immense pressure on the government, politicians to speak up about climate change. But I don't think it warrants us fighting over what needs to be done. In fact, we should actually be working together and coming up with the solutions. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Melissa. That's a very important message. there. Yeah.
5: So um, I'd like to just uh, quickly move
1: back to the uh, pigeonhole where we actually have one uh, question here. And I thought that would be a re- really a nice wrap up to this session. So the question is from Christopher and he's asking what, in the panel's view, are the best game changes that will drive behavioural change by people? Uh, by businesses and by governments acting across borders to adopt sustainable practices in our lives. So what are the best game-changers that will drive behavioural change? And um, I just wonder if uh, maybe does Vera want to, to start off there and give
6: us your insight on this? Well, that's a very really difficult question I'm glad you pointed to. <laughs> no, I'm not glad. I'm kidding. <laughs> Alright. Um, so so this is interesting, right? Uh, I, I would say, the biggest game changer is is changing what's what's within right what's what's inside our mind and the way we perceive and conceive of problems i think i think i, I shared in my, in my in my remarks as well is that you know i talk about innovation philosophy right changing a language of exploitation to you know a language of regeneration but the same thing applies uh for the way we go about life the way we go about you know if we think of life as something that we win at the expense of others if we start thinking in ways that we got to, you know, be Kiasi, Kiasu, and all the things that are about Singapore, they come in, uh, then those are things that will not be helpful at all, right? Uh, so I think that's, that's what, uh, that that's, that who's been my response to that question.
1: Thank you very much, Yira. Very engaging indeed. And uh, does anyone else, um, maybe, Muneeb, what do you think about game changes? And then we'll move
4: what? On to the Just one word, education. Okay.
1: To the point, yes. <laughs> Simon.
2: I wish I could have only one word. Can I squeeze in a few more? Yes, please. I think one will be education and generational change. I'm 60. Uh, in my generation, uh, sustainability and climate weren't uh, very clear, understood, or emphasized. But I detect a real sea change in the younger people. It's much more normal to be concerned about the future, climate change, and sustainability. The second, is that beyond this sense of values or purpose, we must reward values in the other sense. Companies that are innovative, that are watching ESG, that are doing the right thing, have to be rewarded. That's their goal. I think in many points, though he's not here for the Q&A, Professor Edmund said things which are understood and in fact accepted by many of us at the change level. Uh, We have to really look to finance investment and the overall market to reward and recognize and actually punish but also nudge, quite forcibly nudge, the reluctant companies to make a change. Uh, And this is going to happen. Uh, In this sense, our region is really right. The region we live in has been really oftentimes on the lower end of the environmental performance scale, affecting both local problems as well as global problems. We really need to be one of those to work in partnership with our neighbours to push that envelope so Singapore's very small footprint can get leveraged and magnified through the finance and other levers to really make a sense of change. We are in a crisis, the pandemic. We should not waste this crisis, not just economically, not just innovatively, but in terms of dealing with the longer term sustainability and climate crisis that's emerging.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. So I, I think Simon actually uh, gave a very nice, even kind of a concluding statement in that sense for this forum. So we have five minutes left and um, typically what we'll, I'll do will be to close the session. But I'd like to uh, put our speakers and discussants a little bit on the spot uh, because I think uh, we the audience would love to hear more from you. Uh, and we have so little time. So if I could ask you to actually give me a one give the audience a one-minute message or it can be a message or it can be a recommendation that you'd like to uh, like us to take away with uh, for this forum session so um, I just leave it to anyone who'd like to start who is ready to, to go um, if not uh, maybe I can nominate uh, Munich, Munich looks ready to go
4: okay. to okay. and <laughs> <well>. <laughs> <laughs> yes so so I think going back to uh, just elaborating basically I think education uh, and personal education, That that's and personal purpose. We talk about purpose, this whole thing, this whole discussion, uh, thanks to Alex, was also around corporate purpose, but what's our personal purpose? And I think once we are well-educated and uh, in terms of not only in my case, financial capital, but human capital, social capital, the environmental capital as an investor, same with an industry player, a policy maker, if in a professional context and also in a personal context, let's educate ourselves and then redefine our professional and personal purpose. That would be my uh, one advice is please take 2021 to redefine, re- refine re- refine your purpose. Thank you.
1: Thank you, wonderful. Thank you, Meneep. Simon, one minute.
2: <laughs> well, I think I agree with it, but additionally, I guess my heart of my presentation was that Singapore, is well suited to make a change for ourselves. There will be challenges, but the critical challenge was whether we can move not just our own economy, but really have that influence across the region. We must be green at home and increase our capacity, our innovativeness, etc. But we must use that to move the wider region, to have a sense of partnership and positive influence on a win win basis. Excellent summary. Thank you very
1: much, Simon. And Vera, over to you.
6: Right So uh, my basically uh, uh, the takeaway I would like uh, the audience to walk away with is is that you know it starts with uh, something I think like like uh, Munit mentioned as well, the personal change uh, in terms of how we view uh, the issue. but also I think action is very important. Uh, I spent 10 years in this space not very long, I know, but uh, I've, I'm so done with awareness and education. I'm so done with it. <laughs> <laughs> like it is time for action right it is time to get things done and this time will never come again this covid pandemic post pandemic situation we'll never get the opportunity to rewrite the economic story of singapore as we get the opportunity right now right so right now is where we got to do it thank you thank you Vera. very
5: impactful listen yeah. And actually, the funny thing is that I, I think I absolutely agree with the, the three speakers um, on this panel. Actually, what I have written down is get up and do. So um, in addition, I have don't complain. So I think as Singaporeans, we complain a little bit too much. I'm guilty of it, too. Um, but if, if, if we constantly think that's, that the the role of addressing climate change is somebody else's role or somebody else's responsibility. I don't think we will get to our goals. We won't become more ambitious over time. So it's really important as what Vera says, just just get up and do already, you know. Um, and if you can't, then try. What's the worst that can happen?
1: Thank you, Melissa. Very poignant indeed. So I would like to thank each and every one of the speaker, uh, Simon, we need- Thira and Melissa, for your very excellent inputs uh, to this forum. We have benefited a lot, myself included, uh, wisdom, learning from each of you. So I hope the audience has also benefited. And uh, I'm so sorry that we could not cover all of the questions from the pigeonhole, but uh, your questions were really very interesting and important. And I hope that we got to answer some of them at least. So thank you very much for joining us in this forum. And we hope that you can join uh, more sessions to come. Thank you.
0: Thank you, um, Corinne. May we convey our thanks to to Dr. Corinne Ong for so ably uh, moderating this session. And we'd like to thank all the panelists and all of you for joining in and contributing to the session. Do feel free to continue with your comments on the session's topic of environment and sustainability in the conference chat, as we will be taking all of your inputs today onto our final day uh, plenary sessions on the 25th of January as well as to the IPS Reimagining Singapore 2030 project. This session has been recorded, and you will be able to review the recording on this conference page. Uh, We will take a break now, but uh, please do remember our next session in the conference will begin at 8 p.m. on the global economy, and we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, and good day.